Welcome to the HDFS Careers Podcast, the podcast featuring informal conversations with family science majors about their professional journeys. My name is Erica Jordan. Today, I will be sharing my interview with Crystal Van. I met Crystal with the help of one of my former teaching assistants who found her on LinkedIn a few years ago. Crystal is a graduate of the HDFS program where I teach at the University of Houston. She graduated before I began working there, so I never taught her in one of my courses. However, she has kindly served as a guest speaker in my careers in HDFS class, and my students love hearing her story. She currently works as a program innovation manager at Child Advocates of Fort Bend in Rosenberg, Texas. Without further ado, here's her interview. Welcome to the podcast, Crystal. Hi, thank you. I appreciate you having me. I'm really grateful and I'm excited and hopefully the information I can share can can help some future HDFS graduates. I'm sure it will. Okay, we'll go ahead and jump right into it. So just to begin, can you tell me a little bit about um, how you discovered HDFS as an undergraduate? Yeah, so um, I am a planner. And so (laughs) when I was in college, I was actually very indecisive about what my major should be. Um, I had a lot of interest. I was very interested in art. I was very interested in working with kids specifically. Um, And I just couldn't quite put my finger on what I wanted to do, whether it was art or teaching or teaching art. Um, And then I met with my advisor. I did some research and I heard of the educational psychology major HDFS. And I was like, wow, um, that's basically everything that I want wrapped up in one because it requ- it offered me the teaching piece. It offered me art. It offered me working with kids. And so when I happened upon it, I was just really excited um, and basically switched my major um, to that right away. As soon as I took my first HDFS class to kind of figure out like, is this what I want to do? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so yeah, it was, um, that's right. Yeah. So it was in the educational psychology department. They've changed names since then at the university of Houston, um, when you were there and HDFS is, I mean, it, it is like so many different things. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, uh, wrapped up into one remind me now, when did you graduate? I graduated in 2012. Okay, 2012. Okay. <laughs> I had so to you, think for a second there. <laughs> like, yeah. Wait, what year is it? <laughs> right. So you take your first HDFS class, you're like, I'm hooked. I love this. What do you remember what your first class was? Oh, I don't remember. It was definitely one of the intro courses. Um, I remember because I was in psychology as well. And I thought, like, well, I really like psychology. Um, and I think that's what kind of led me to HDFS as well. So it was one of the intro courses, or maybe it was like infant development, something like that. But I really just loved everything about the class and, and just the teachers, the, even the, the students that were in there with me. Everyone just had very similar interests, and it was very interesting to me. Awesome. Okay, and so you switch um, majors, and then... So you're going through your classes, still enjoying those. Like, um, can you just kind of tell me about what your later experiences in the classes were like or what other things maybe you did while you were in school? Um, just, yeah, kind of what was your experience like in the major? What I really liked about the class is that it offered me a whole perspective of um, I guess the way people think, why they think it, human development, 
um, the understanding of behaviors. Um, there were research courses that were very interesting. Um, really just everything about it offered me insight um, in ways that I was just thought was really interesting. Like not only is it helping you learn how to teach and work with kids, it's helping you understand how to get on their level, how to really put kids where they were, um, how to approach a child in a way that was child friendly and a way that was productive and best for both you as a teacher and them as a learner. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's just like the psychology behind everything and then consolidating that with teaching. And then of course, as someone who was an art, you know, focusing in on art, I really um, interlaced that within what I was doing. So I was kind of balancing, I did my, my minor was actually in studio art. Okay. So during my degree plan, I did a lot of art stuff. I did some internships, which were phenomenal um, through HDFS. I did several internships, three different ones. Wow. Yeah. And most people only do one. And so, yeah, that's great. I, I know I was one in college who I also did more than one internship, mm -hmm. but yeah, I definitely love to hear all about those. You know what? Let's first though, I'm so curious about your art background as well. So what type of art, like, were you into, um, or are you still into in that time? Like, you know, yeah. Um, so I was really interested in painting at the time. And so um, I was taking some very long, um, I think anyone who's an art major would know that <laughs> they're like three hour courses. And so these long, beautiful art courses with sculpture and painting. Um, my, my minor was actually studio art. So it was kind of a mix of a lot of different things. Um, I, yeah, like art history. Um, I did a I dabbled a little bit in everything, but my favorite by far was definitely painting. Painting. Okay. And like you felt like you were able to still bring in some of that. Awesome. Yeah. I actually did do a main, my main project for my final senior internship was art-based and the, the children all did um, a, we did the seven continents and okay. they learned about art from different cultures from each continent. And then they actually did an art project from that continent. And so, wow. Yeah. And they presented it to my HDFS class. It was one of my, by far one of my favorite moments from that internship. So. Okay. So tell us about that internship first. And then I want to hear about the other two. I want to hear about all these internships. So like, where were these kids from? How many of them? Yeah. Roughly? How old were they? Okay. Yeah. So, um, the intern that, that my longest internship, which was basically a semester, my senior year before I graduated, you have to do, I think at least like 300 hours. It was a charter school on campus at U of H. So most people don't know, but there is, um, a daycare and an actual charter school on campus that you can go and do internship hours and observe and learn about, you know, kids and working with them. Um, and so that's where it was. And I was working with kindergarten and first graders. They were in a consolidated class. Okay. Um, and I got to co, it was a co-teaching setting. So there was usually two teachers in a classroom and I was in there as an intern and observer, but they kind of like handed me <laughs> the reins here and there and let me take over obviously to practice my skills. But, um, yeah, it was first graders and kindergartners and we did everything. Like I learned how to work with the kids in small scale settings where I would do some reading intervention with them. I would do larger scale things where we would do projects with all of the kids. Um, I learned the different like approaches. One of the best things that I learned about that internship was classroom management. 
Um, (laughs) (laughs) Being able to meet a lot of different kids on a lot of different levels, because this was a charter school, so it's a public school, and you have kids that were very high functioning. Then you had kids that needed accommodations that were low functioning, or there were learning disabilities, a lot of different types of learners and students. And so, um, you know, I had to learn how to like manage all of those kids all at once, um, which was slightly petrifying <laughs> when you're when you're a, like new to to public speaking even like because you have to learn how to to speak um to a group of kids and hope they listen <laughs> yes yeah and then even talking to their parents and having a conversation with a parent is a lot different um and so yeah, I had to learn how to do that I had to learn how to um not only communicate with an, a parent but also communicate with a parent about their children's needs, which can be a really hard thing sometimes, especially if you're talking to them about something sensitive like a, an accommodation that they need, or if they, for example, said a bad word even in, in class. Like it's just a skill set that you have to like work on. So yeah, and I had a phenomenal teacher that worked with me. I had two, um, I still remember them very clearly. Um, Amber and then Nadia were my two teachers. Um, and there was actually a para in there as well, because there was a child that had one-on-one needs because he was um, on the autism spectrum. And so I worked with all of them very closely, and they really taught me a lot. It was it was a wonderful experience for me. That sounds like it. Okay, so the the para that's the they call it paraeducator. Yeah, who yeah, like a paraprofessional. Okay. Mm-hmm. Paraprofessional who was assisting um, uh, the child who had some. Um, more intensive special needs. And yeah, no, you're right. I mean, talking to a parent can be intimidating, but especially when you're talking about their child, talking about a child and they have, you know, it's a sensitive issue, sensitive situation. So yeah, I bet that was a steep learning curve. <laughs> and like was, you said, it was a lot to learn for sure, but it was a wonderful experience. So it sounds like it. Okay. So, and then the, what were the other two? And I don't think I ever knew the details of all three of your internship experiences, even though I've been lucky enough to talk to you before. So I'm really curious about the other two as well. Yeah. So I also worked at um, a daycare in a low income area um, with babies in an infant class because I just love babies. And Mm -hmm. that was actually my very first internship. I was very interested in in learning about infants. And I think that people a lot of times make the mistake. um, Well, maybe people just that don't understand um, kids make the mistake that babies don't understand things or don't do things like they're just like these adorable squishy blobs but um <laughs> you learn about every single milestone of a kid and how impactful and you can be as a parent or as a person working with an infant and how you could be a difference from nurturing them from one milestone to another or teaching them, or, or understanding that babbling is language for them, um, yeah. simple things. And you, and what I love so much about that internship is that it helps you slow down. Um, it helped me to realize that these kids had specific needs, um, and that it was you have to slow down to see what their needs are, and um, to watch their progression and show the time and how um, they're growing and acknowledge that like, cause small things can be huge with, especially with infants. And, um, also that, that all kids, but infants, you know, they, they kind of move at their own pace. Right. So they're developing yeah. stones. Um, and I noticed a huge difference, for example, in some of the kids who, um, 
had different dynamics at home. Like one child was breastfed, had a two parent home, um, and just had a different background than another child who was from a single parent home, who wasn't being breastfed, um, who had just different experiences, um, Mm -hmm. different. And so they were at a different pace um, and neither one was right or wrong, but it was just really interesting to like learn about those things because I mean, I didn't really understand all of that. I understood kids have their own, you know, milestones and they communicate differently, but you just, I observed a lot in that internship that I was not expecting, I guess. Yeah. I always get so overwhelmed still today, even talking about the the milestones in infancy because infancy is such a rapid time of development, mm-hmm. but you're right. Like that range of normal development for every child, it, even still within the normal range, we're not even talking about if you start to get into, um, you know, more atypical situations, mm-hmm. but even within the normal range of development is so broad. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's like, yeah, I mean, every child is so different. And I love what you said. Like, yeah, it definitely does get you to slow down for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Um, uh, working with one-on-one with the infants, if you're really going to be focused on reading their cues and meeting their right. needs the best you can, like, yeah, you have to be very focused. That's true. Mm-hmm. And what was the other, the third yeah. um, internship? So my other internship, I worked at a Jewish school with kids and I can't, I think they were kindergarten age, which kindergarten, first grade. I just, I love that age. They're just hilarious to me. I don't know why, but they really are. <laughs> I just think they're really funny. Um, so I were, yeah, I worked with a, a group of kindergarten kids and that was, you know, now that I think about it, that one was probably before the infant one. Um, I just think that the infant one was my later senior ones. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So it was my very first one was at the Jewish school and then I did the infant one and then was my final at the other school. So that yeah, the first time I like publicly spoke <laughs> in front of children and I was like, Oh my gosh, what am I doing? <laughs> yeah. And I, it's kind of interesting that, yeah, you have, um, you have this variety of different settings too. Like you have like kind of the childcare setting. I don't know if it was a state or private childcare, daycare it, setting. It was a, it was not private. It was like, I believe state. Mm-hmm. State. Okay. Okay. And so you have a state kind of childcare setting and then you have the charter school. And then, um, well, the charter school was last and then <laughs> I'm going out of order here, but you had like yeah, the Jewish school, <laughs> the religious, the religious setting. Then Which you was have, private uh, by the way. The private Jewish school, then you mm-hmm. have the um, uh, the state setting, childcare setting, and then you have this charter school. So yeah, that's I, I like that you get a variety. And so, what um, specifically did you do at the private Jew- Jewish school with the um, yeah kiddos there? So, um, like I said, that was earlier in my internship um, or in my my school experience, my college career. And so I did a lot of shadowing with that one. Um, Good. I did a yeah. lot of journaling on things I was learning about and that I was observing. Um, and I did do like some one-on-one stuff. I do remember doing like, you know, smaller group settings, intervention, things like that. Um, and I did speak to the kids in a group setting, but primarily I think I was doing shadowing and like a lot of, um, journaling and stuff to kind of learn about the ways that they were working with the kids, how to approach them, and also speaking with the family and the parents, which was a completely different experience from, uh, I mean, it was similar, but also very different than speaking with the parents and the families when I was working at the charter school. Yeah. Oh, how, how do you feel like it was different, do you think? 
Um, I think that it was just, I think that the parents and the family were just concerned um, sometimes about different things. Um, oh, interesting. Levels, if that makes sense. Hmm. So it's private school versus a public school and just kind of their approach on um, what they felt might have been important for their youth might have been a little bit different. <laughs> Oh yeah, different priorities. Yeah, yeah. different priorities. Um, and again, it's not about being good or bad. It's just about it was different. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think everyone has different expectations, expectations, um, and hopes for their children. And so you just have to make sure that you acknowledge and are aware of that when you're working with kids and families. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and so, and so, yeah, so both of those were, even the private Jewish school, it was like more of an academic classroom. It wasn't like day mm -hmm. camp. It was a child. Okay. Yeah. And, and not right. to say that the, my charter school experience was, it just was a very different learning style, different teaching philosophy for sure. Oh yes. Yes. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to imply that either. I was thinking, <laughs> well, I, just, I was thinking, I was just trying to say, okay, now, yeah, one was a specific, one of your many internships. Um, one of them was like a specific, just childcare setting whereas the other two right. they were academic settings yes so exactly. like it was like during the school day gotcha exactly. <laughs> yeah no <laughs> not to imply that one is day camp for sure <laughs> um but you know some of the schools will have these kind of summer camp programs or after school programs mm -hmm. and so i know some of our students will work on that side of it but it sounds like you were during during the kind of academic instructional time is when you were helping right i was yeah i didn't do any um camp stuff and i was Okay. going to at one point, but I didn't end up doing that. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. So yeah, you racked up some good experiences. Did you just out of curiosity, did you work at all outside of your internships during your college career? Or did you just focus oh, specifically on absolutely. classes? <laughs> you did. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, what what other types of jobs did you have? So, um, actually throughout college, I'm, Primarily bartended and waited tables. Um, okay, because you can make a lot of money that way. I do. <laughs> on the nights and <laughs> the time that you're out of school. Yeah, no, in graduate. Well, I've I've known some of my former graduate students. Like, yeah, they'll work on the weekends, and then that way they can focus during the week. Yeah, it was very flexible for me because I would basically go to school all week or certain days of the week, and then I would I would bartend like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and I would work a double here or there. And I paid my way through school with minimal length. I was minimal loans by the time I graduated. So that's awesome, Crystal. So grant grants and, and working really helped me to, you know, get through school basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you, and two, not I'm, a lot of people, I don't think think about it, but when you're working, even when you're working at these positions that are quote unquote considered outside of the field, you're still mm -hmm. picking up all sorts of different skills like managing multiple demands, um, interacting with different types of people, you know, just being yeah. responsible. And, you know, and I think that those are transferable skills that are useful too. Absolutely. I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. Cause you have to learn how to talk to people um, in uh, all sorts of different settings. And so whenever I would, even if when I waited tables versus bartended, I had to learn how to talk to people. And then when I talked to somebody who was older versus younger or a man versus a woman, there was a different skill set in every one of those conversations. Um, yeah. And you have to have a certain sense of like um, confidence to walk up to a table and be like, hi, how can I help you? What, what can I do for you? And the service industry for sure is I think a field that is um, 
maybe doesn't get as much credit as it deserves because it really teaches you a lot about how to treat people, how to be kind to people, um, how to approach people. Um, and just like in general, like being in the service industry really teaches you, I think a lot about yourself and how you can walk away from a conversation and just decide, no, I'm not going to let that bother me. Or that person made me feel really good about myself. And like, just, you just learn a lot about yourself and other people through that industry. Um, and again, it's quicker, <laughs> in my opinion, it was a quick way to make money. So <laughs> yeah, I needed that no. in my schedule. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You got, I mean, it was, that was a very kind of smart, that was a smart approach. Yeah. But you're right. You have to think so well on your feet to just kind of, I mean, you never know what you're walking into. Yeah. And time <laughs> what, management. What table you're walking up to. Yeah. yeah you got to learn yeah. how to, to time your man. Like if you can't manage your time well, like it might not <laughs> one for you. Work out well. You've got seven <laughs> tables sat all at once. You have a lot of different needs you're trying to meet. So it does teach you a lot about multitasking time management and just, you know, uh, self-motivation to like really get the job done. <laughs> Yes. And I already know just a, a precursor to what we talk about. You're a very organized person in your field today, but we'll get to that later. So clearly <laughs> it's a lesson. Yes. That is, it's a skill set that you honed and that has stuck with you. Oh my gosh. Yes. Um, so, okay. As you're like getting closer to graduation, what are you thinking? Like, what are you feeling? Oh my gosh. Did you have any like specific plans for right after graduation? Ooh, so, um, I mean, it's, it's a, like, there's a lot of feelings that go into almost graduating, right? Like, oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> on one hand, I'm super excited and I can't wait to like put down the books for a long time. Like I still remember walking out of my last class and being like, that could be my last class for forever. Yes. <laughs> like, oh my God, finally. But also on the, on the same breath, you're like, what do I do now? Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> what, do I, what am I supposed to be doing? So um, I didn't mention earlier, but I did do a lot of volunteering, which I think is a huge part of figuring about figuring out like, what do I want to do later? Yeah. Um, so we can, I mean, if you want me to go into that, I can talk. Yeah. Tell me what types of volunteering you did for sure. Yeah. So, um, I definitely did a lot of volunteering with, um, just helping in general. Like that was my main focus. Like I, I, volunteered at animal shelters because I wanted to give back to animals. I volunteered at a museum. Um, I volunteered just um, through CASA, which is, which you'll hear more about later because I work here at CASA now with CASA, but, um, and that's court appointed special advocates working with children in foster care. Um, and I did that when I was 21 and you have to be 21 to do it. So I kind of was like, very excited about it. I just do it. And so as soon as I turned 21, I started doing that. And the reason I did that, um, just tried out some of these different places, um, you know, food banks, places like that was because I wanted to figure out like, if this is what I actually wanted to do, right. Do I actually, do I want to work with kids in a museum setting? Do I want to work with animals? Like, um, and do I want to work with kids that are in a vulnerable population, kids from hardship and hard places? Like it's a, it's hard to figure out if you want to do something until I think that you've actually tried it out or shadowed or done something like that. So I would really encourage for anyone that's interested in something, if they aren't sure to just try volunteering first or, or speak to someone in the profession, like to really get an idea of what that looks like. But most importantly, I think you as a person should try it out. Um, and say, hey, 
like I either really love this or no, I don't like volunteering at an animal shelter because it's sad <laughs> and it's yeah. hard. Um, and you know, it's got, there's a lot of different perspectives, but that was a really valuable for me. Um, and so when I graduated that anticipation, I knew like, I definitely want to work with kids. Um, I knew that at the end, whenever I was graduating. So I was like, okay, so now I've narrowed my field. I know I want to yes. work with kids. Um, but where do I go? What do I do sort of thing? Um, and so I think one of, one of the other valuable things that you should do to learn about yourself and to figure out where you kind of want to go to narrow your field um, is to fall back on some of those connections you make. Um, and so what's great about volunteering is you develop a connection and if maybe it doesn't work out there as an actual place you want to work or be, or as even a volunteer, you can still call on them as a reference, right? Um, sure. The professors in, in, college that I worked with, I asked some of them for reference letters. I asked some of them for recommendations, you know, like, what do you think? And actually my last, um, internship at that charter school was where I ended up taking a job. That was my very first, like in this career field, working with kids job. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And so tell me, yeah. So tell me about your first job. Did you start it kind of right after graduation or was there kind of a period where you were just kind of exploring options and then you took it? Yeah. So the first thing I wanted to do was I felt like I deserved a break. <laughs> yeah. And I think that everyone does in everything that you're doing. And that's a really important part of, um, of dealing with anything that you're going through, right? Like you have to practice self-care. And so after college, I was like, I, I need a break. And so I booked a trip and I went to Europe for a little over um, a month. Nice. Yeah. And so I traveled around, met different people and, you know, just kind of like explored and took some time for myself um, and just time to like learn about different places and try new things and just have that sense of adventure with the intention that as soon as I got home, like, all right, it's back to applying. It's following up on people with connections. And I was basically applying anywhere and everywhere because, um, I just wanted to get in and get my foot in the door and kind of get the experiences. And so that's kind of what I was doing. And then, um, just kind of like taking a breather right after school, you know? Yes. So, yeah. And then I applied at the charter school because I learned that they, um, had an opening for a co-teacher in the fifth grade class with 10 and 11 year olds. <laughs> <laughs> And I got very that. different from first graders. Well, maybe not. Who knows? <laughs> oh my gosh. So different, but also similar. <laughs> Definitely. Okay. So you, uh, you apply. And so I guess you start that position in what August? Mm -hmm. I did. Okay. At the beginning of the school year, you're, you're going back to school this time in a different way. You're the teacher now. <laughs> right. And I was like barely taller than some of my fifth graders. So <laughs> I look really young and I had purple hair and tattoos. And so it was just like a, what? Like, who are you? These kids are looking at me kind of crazy. And so it was just, <laughs> it was fun and new for all of us. <laughs> yes. So how did you, what was that like first position like? How did you, I mean, yeah. I guess there was a lot of learning on the job trial by fire, but yeah, share whatever you want to share about that first position. I was so scared, honestly, like, <laughs> yeah. I was just like, oh my God, what do I say? What do I do? No, um, it was great, actually. Like I, 
I was still bartending on the weekends just because that gave me like a sense of like peace that like I'm still doing something that I know and I feel comfortable with and have that steady income. And also like, I don't, I mean, as a co-teacher, I wasn't (laughs) not making the most money. Yes. Um, But yeah, I remember walking into the classroom and like looking around and I was like, wow, this is like my classroom. Like I share it with another teacher, but this is my classroom. And like, I get to work with these kids and I get paid to do this. Like pretty surreal feeling to realize like my income doesn't depend on how fast I get to the table and drop off their food. (laughs) My income now is I'm teaching kids. Like I get to talk to kids. Like I get to do something I love all day long, which is very tiring sometimes, but I love it. And it was kind of surreal, honestly. Okay. Yeah. Man, that, uh, so how long did you stay there and kind of, what did you like about it? What did you not like about it? I know you, you're not there anymore. So like, yeah, what, what prompted you to eventually kind of explore other options? Right. So, um, what I loved about it is because they were older, which is something I didn't quite get when I was working with the kindergarten and first graders was I got to really like talk to the kids, you know? Yeah. There were kids from all different backgrounds. Um, there were all different family dynamics, you know, you know, kids that were, had higher socioeconomic statuses, kids that had lower, kids that were very like diverse, like culturally, mm-hmm. you know, like I had kids that were only vegetarians. I had kids that were of all color um, right. and even just like ability, you know, there were kids that were so, I, there were kids and they're probably smarter than me. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) And then there were kids that, you know, had to have a little bit extra help and they stayed for tutoring. And it was wonderful because I got to experience a whole world of different kids, um, different learning, different styles, different personalities. Like, oh my gosh, the personality. Like, yeah, there was a lot of personality, which sometimes was hard. (laughs) (laughs) Like I used to tell the kids like, okay, you can put your performance in, like get off stage and come back to class with the rest of us. Like, Cause they would just act a fool in front of everybody for the attention, you know? Um, uh-huh. but it was fine and it was great. Um, it was hard sometimes because I mean, when you work with kids and when you work with people, like people challenge you, kids challenge you. And sometimes they don't realize, um, you know, how much like you need, you need a, like a breather. Um, and so it can be very stressful, but I think one of the best parts about working with an older group of kids is helping them empathize and see and realize, like, look at me, like, like, look at each other, understand like that there is something going on. Like this is stressful for them, for you. Like there's bullying that happens. There's kids that like can't read and there's kids making fun of them in that sense. And so there were a lot of hard things and seeing stuff like that, or like, kids that you could tell needed more support and maybe weren't getting it. Um, right. Um, and then even kids that just like, you know, went through some extreme loss, like, you know, like loss of a parent. And so things like that were very hard. Um, and you know, if you don't practice that self care, it can like really cause, I think some burnout, um, and some stress. For sure. Mm -hmm. For sure. Being a family member, I remember this being hard, helping family realize Um, cause I, I think that it's hard sometimes for family or parents to accept that maybe their child is struggling. Yeah. That can be very hard to relay in a positive 
way and in a way like, well, I know that they're struggling, but these are the interventions we're doing. This is how we can help them, how you can help them and support them. And so sometimes that translation is hard um, for family members to get. So, but yeah, overall, like I'd say the experience was incredibly positive. Um, yeah. I did get to do some art. I did, they had these um, special like little, um, it's called World Bazaar, where they would, <laughs> they would have <laughs> learning events. And then they would also have like specialty activities where different teachers with different skill sets would do like either music and mine was, you know, obviously I chose art. Right. And so the kids would volunteer and I got to practice that with the kids. Um, yeah. And so it was, it was a really great experience. Um, you know, yeah, that world bazaar sounds really fun. I yeah. go to that. <laughs> uh, okay. So what did you, so, so when did you kind of shift, shift, um, and leave. or transition away from the charter school teaching? Yeah, so I was still volunteering um, at Child Advocate Support Benton, which is where I work now. Um, okay. I was a CASA volunteer for a few years, and my supervisor emailed me and was like, hey, we have a position for um, a CASA supervisor that's open if you're interested. And I was like, oh, okay. I was like, yeah, for sure. And I went and read like the job description, and I looked through it. And I almost didn't apply because I was like, gosh, I really love what I'm doing. Yeah. Oh, let me just see. And so I went ahead and I applied and I interviewed and then I interviewed again. <laughs> got it. They loved me, I guess. So here. Yeah, that's awesome. And it goes to show you like, I mean, at this point you had been volunteering there for how long? Over a year, right? Oh yeah. I was, I think I was on my second case. So it was at least two years or okay. and a half. Yeah. And you just kind of volunteering in your free time. You have this kind of thing that you do mm -hmm. um, for a few hours. Yeah. It was very I don't know, flexible. You say for a month. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you can see the children basically anytime. I mean, in what, I guess I should give background on CASA and what that looks like, but basically um, anytime a child comes into the foster care system, um, in Fort Bend County, a CASA volunteer is, account, is, a, is appointed, um, and every kid in Fort Bend County has a CASA volunteer. Um, in most counties, in most states, have a CASA program. Okay. However, not every child will have an actual CASA volunteer appointed to them, so our county is pretty unusual in that sense. Um, All right. And so what that looks like is you're basically another set of eyes and ears that is looking out for the child or the children while they're in the foster care system. Um, they have you know, attorneys that are looking out for their legal interests. They have caseworkers who are looking out for them overall, but they're also working with, you know, a lot of family members um, and, and working on a lot of kids on their caseloads. I would only have, as a CASA volunteer, you have usually one case, one group of kids or one child, and you write court reports to the judge. You stand before a judge and you make recommendations about what's in their best interest regarding anything that would, would impact a child, whether it's educational stuff, um, whether they should remain in that placement, um, family connections, uh, mental health stuff, if they need therapy or, or support. And it's just another way to make sure that kids don't kind of slip through the cracks and you will stay a point really cool. to them until the case either closes and finds some kind of resolution um, or for, you know, like if, if it's non-suited or something like, basically the case ends. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, so you did that. And it was once, um, a, I'm sorry, I didn't say this, but it's once a month, you'll visit the child, um, check in with them, you'll talk to their caregiver, or if it's their place with family, you talk to their family members, you, you hang out with the kid, and you know, you get to interact with them, um, and which is the best part, of course, to, 
to just play with the kids and learn about what they need and, and talk to their school and their family and everyone and anyone that's going to really come into contact with the kid. And that's how you make these reports for the judge and make your recommendations. Yeah, that's really neat. And I mean, from a human development family studies perspective, you really are learning about the entire family system, you know, um, the, excuse me, the entire, not just family system. No, you're le learning about the entire like sort of um, ecological system, like all these various systems that uh, all these various environments that interact with the child and that the child interacts with. Right. And yeah, it's kind of rare that um, people get to touch all those different aspects so yeah yeah definitely and you get to hang out with the kid <laughs> yeah you can, it's a it's a wonderful experience um to to do it as a volunteer um and you're right in that like there are a lot of different facets and a lot of different systems because i did also work with closely with the family members and because you can't um help a family and a child if you don't look at them as a whole right like they're right parts that need to be addressed um if you want to eventually work to getting them reunified with the family and if that's not an option then you go down you know the next route whichever whatever it might be okay so you did that in this volunteer opportunity you volunteered there for a couple of years and then this eventually leads to this job offer that you're not really looking for they, they let you know that hey, we have this position open. They've obviously noticed that you've worked well as a volunteer. Mm -hmm. Invite you to come in after you apply. You get the job. Yep, they clearly yeah. love you. <laughs> and so, yeah. And so what was your first position with um, Child Advocates of Fort Bend? Yeah, so my very first position was as a CASA supervisor, um, okay. which was nerve wracking for me because basically what a CASA supervisor does is you are the person that's overseeing the volunteers and you have a certain caseload, um, you know, like say you're seeing, you overseeing 15 cases um, and you have like, you know, 25 kids. And so you're making sure that the volunteers are supported in their advocacy role um, and helping them navigate through this system that can sometimes be very complicated and guide them and um, observing their reports and making adjustments. And you're, you're there like a hundred percent standing by the volunteer when they make recommendations to the judge. Um, you go out on the first visit with the volunteer. You do a lot of documentation just to make sure that you um, show that you have followed up on certain avenues and documented, you know, kind of the needs and why there are certain recommendations and what those needs are. Um, and then obviously there's a lot of other things involved with working with kids. So, there are different needs that they have. And so what I also did, um, I was working with an age group that was specific to six to 13. Um, our team each had, age group has a specialized team. Mm -hmm. Zero to five, there's a certain group of um, needs that kids have primarily, six to 13. And then we have our older kids, 14 plus. And so I got that 16, six to 13 group. Um, and so we focused in a lot on those needs, which our educational needs you know they're starting school um, obviously there's social needs that they have and then health and hygiene so we created different um, toolkits um, we created different programming to help support those kids in those different arenas um, we had summer programs that we built around those needs and we took the kids out into the community we literally loaded a bus with all the kids and <laughs> come out into the community so they could experience things like going to a museum because some of those kids that we were working with had never been to a museum. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, yeah, you're getting to do some kind of 
fun, interesting stuff, but then also life skills, and then also supervising the people who are serving as advocates. And just how, about what would you say, roughly how many advocates were you supervising in that role? So it will vary over time depending on how many kids are in care. But I, if I can recall, I was probably supervising between like 15 and 20. Okay. And so, yeah, and you're having to keep up, ensure that their documentation is accurate and correct. Right. <laughs> and, and then, then yeah. yeah. And keep up with the court process because you have to go to court. Um, some cases. Times 15 or 20. And right. So that takes a lot of organization. <laughs> right. Right. It's definitely a lot of communication because you've got attorneys and caseworkers and court and and different meetings that are case related. So you just have to like make sure that <laughs> you are pretty organized with some of that information or have it written down somewhere. <laughs> Absolutely. And then y'all have this kind of fun summer program too that you're doing oh, on top of it and that yeah. has to be organized. Yeah, there yeah. were so many wonderful programs. We have incentive programs and summer programs and all sorts of different things to help support the kids um, in, in the way that they needed to be supported. That's great. And so how long did you work in that role? So, oh my gosh, <laughs> I think I was the supervisor. I mean, I'm still a supervisor currently, but as the gotcha. considered the nest CASA supervisor, I think for about four or five years or so. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then I switched to be the program uh, development and then slash CASA supervisor. So, okay. What's the program development? Yes. Yeah. Is that focused on the summer programs? Yeah. So basically then what I went into doing was I supported each of the programs and all of their programming. So as I said, we had a lot of different age groups and they have a various, um, various needs. And so for the, the younger kids, those babies, like we'll develop programming geared towards those milestones they're trying to achieve. And if they don't have them, like what kind of interventions can you put in place? And, you know, parents wow. programs because, um, a lot of times those babies, like their, uh, their families are very engaged and working very hard at reunification. And how do you support that? So like mentorship with the parents and stuff like that. And then with those older kids, like they have different needs as well. They really have a need for life skills and um, higher education, like preparing them for college. And so I worked closely with each of the team members on those teams, which I had a wonderful, um, a wonderful team. Um, and I helped support them in whatever programming they were time, as well as, again, I continue to supervise, um, volunteers as a cost supervisor. Okay. And you're still doing the, um, that today. You still have some like caseload of CASAs. I do. Yeah. So my, my job shifted again, um, last year. Um, and now I'm a program innovation manager. And so Although I still do a lot of the support for the different programs within each of the age groups, I also supervise um, two wonderful um, young ladies who do specialize on um, family connections is one of our main focuses. It's called collaborative family engagement um, and really just focusing on supporting families and children while they're in foster care and connecting them to each other. Um, and then the other program is called a courtesy CASA program. And that's where basically when kids are placed out of county, um, they can ask local programs to visit on their behalf and check in and lay eyes on the kids and make sure that they're doing okay and report it back to that local program. So I supervise those ladies as well as I have a caseload. And I also um, continue to support the other programming needs for my other team members. 
Okay. So what each one of those programs sounds really interesting with the, the family one. So I guess it's, it's trying to, well, tell me a little bit more about that one. Like, I, I guess, how do you all support like the connections between the families while the kid is in foster care? Yeah. Um, so collaborative family engagement has um, been around for a little while. Um, but basically, it's based on the family finding model, um, which is which is Kevin Campbell, if anybody wants to like look it up. Um, and what they realized was kids do better with family and family connections. Um, and that looks different, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, family doesn't necessarily mean that they're biologically family. Um, but this program was developed and it was kind of supported by Texas CASA, which is um, the agency that kind of like oversees and supports local CASA programs. Um, and it created a partnership between CASA and CPS or Child Protective Services or, um, and those teams, those agencies would work together to support and find caring adults um, while they're in the foster care system um, and help support the child in all of their needs, whether it's education or mental health or whatever it might be. And then they continue to support them to create lasting connections and help build what's called a lifetime network. And so you're basically trying to create a safety net for the kid and for the family Okay. Once our case closes, like they can rely on those people whenever they need help. Okay. So that if they need to get to an appointment and they can't because they have to go to a follow-up therapy appointment, um, they can call aunt or uncle or somebody to help watch the kid or take the kid to their appointment or take the kid to the doctor or to the school. Um, but also to call whenever they're stressed out or they're upset. Um, or when they're thinking about using again, um, you know, it's, yeah, it's supposed to create a, um, a safety net basically. That's great. Um, and, and that can, or it, it can be uh, biological, non-biological or sort of a mix of people. Absolutely. So you can have teachers, you can have cousins, you can have mom and dad, and you can have foster parents, but the point is to make it so that what what happens a lot um, is that our families are coming from really hard places themselves, right? They're mm -hmm. cycle a lot of times where they've had abuse, they've had drug and alcohol use um, and addiction issues. And they come from a childhood where maybe they had the same issues. Um, and so it's a cycle and it's really hard to break. Um, and so when you try to put these safety nets in place and these family supports in place, it's hopefully a way to kind of counteract that and like support them through it so that whenever they're really stressed out um, or when they need that extra support, um, they can call on those people because people don't realize that it, it, it can make a really big difference just by being present, being there and having yeah. safe and stable adult and person in your life that you can rely on for these kids. That can really make a huge difference. Um, and, and it goes with the family members as well. Um, for sure. And then tell me about what's, what is the other one again? So, um, I've forgotten the name of yeah. the, the second one. No, yeah. it's, it's a lot of information. So <laughs> it is, it's interesting though. <laughs> I could talk about it all day and I'm sure that someone could talk about it better than me, but I love to talk about it. So I can. Okay. I'm glad I've got you. No, I'm learning so much. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. So our other program um, that I supervise um, is called the Courtesy Casa program. Um, 
So that's a program that Texas CASA created and that we supervise as a local program. Um, and there are four different courtesy programs right now and for the whole state of Texas. And basically, if you have a child that's a certain distance from you, you're still required to visit them and you're still required to make contact with them as you should, but it's harder to make face-to-face um, -face visits sometimes. And so they request a courtesy CASA to go out and visit on their behalf. Um, and basically what they'll do is they'll check in with the caregiver, they'll check in on the child, they'll make sure that they're okay, um, you know, like just even like hanging out with them, having a conversation, seeing if they need anything. Um, and of course, then talking to the caregivers about what they might need um, or if they're okay. And then they send that information back to the local program so that they um, just have someone else looking out for the kids while they can't make those face-to-face -face visits as a local program. Yeah, and so why would someone be placed, why would a child be placed outside of the county? Oh, goodness. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the goal is always to keep kids close to home, but that's not the way it always works. So there's a lot of different reasons that a child wouldn't be placed closer to home. They might not have family close to home because the goal is always family first, um, if okay. available and if they're appropriate. Um, and then what it comes down to is what's their level of care? What do they need? Um, if they have high needs, it's sometimes really hard to find a, a, a placement close to home. Um, and yeah. the kid is at a higher level because they have a lot of trauma, a lot of behaviors that come from that trauma. Um, if the child might need specialized care because um, they're medically fragile. Um, and they're older and they've been in the system a while and they have a long, um, a long history of, of struggles and behaviors and, um, you know, medication, then they might have a hard time finding a placement closer to home. And because Houston is a huge hub, um, for residential treatment centers or RTCs, which is where kids can be placed if they have a higher level of needs, um, especially someone basically needs to kind of supervise and make sure that they're okay behavior wise um, and keep them from doing things like self-harming or hurting others. Um, kids can be placed further away, but also kids from out of town get placed here because wow. a lot of, of placements here for those RTC centers um, or RTCs. And so what happens is our placements sometimes will get filled from out of county kids or we just can't there just isn't a placement to meet their needs here, so they get placed further away. Um, there's just a, a whole lot of different reasons um, that a kid could not be close, close to home. Makes total sense. Okay, and so yeah, and your role is once again, <laughs> this master organizer to help facilitate all these different people, all these different potential foster parents or agencies. Okay. Well, I'd say my, yeah. I think that I, I can't take all the credit because my employees definitely do. <laughs> Right, right. I'm sorry. You're overseeing the employees. Yes, yes. You're overseeing the employees who do it. <laughs> I can't take all the credit. They, they're, they're wonderful and they do uh, and wonderful things. And so, uh, with yeah. volunteers, we wouldn't be able to do what we do. Um, and it's amazing that we even have a, a, a CASA volunteer for every kid in care in Fort Bend County. You know, that is really amazing. I mean, I. I, I'm sure, yeah, not a lot, like you said, not a lot of places can really claim that, can say that. So that's awesome. Um, wow. Okay. And how long have you been in this current role? So I've been in this role for about a year now. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. So, um, well, yeah, we've made it all the way up through your... <laughs> 
from from yeah your college days all the way up to your your various positions um, at your current um, workplace are there is there anything else like that you want to share that I didn't ask um, also if you have any advice you've been kind of sharing some advice along the way but if you have any other advice that you've thought of for students or new professionals just anything else you want to add yeah in closing. um i would just say that i mean a couple things like i have to say trauma being trauma informed um can be an amazing thing that you can do for yourself and you can do for others um it helps you understand maybe sometimes the reason behind a behavior because behavior happens for a reason with kids with families um, and so just being trauma informed so that you can be compassionate, you can be empathetic um, and not just get frustrated. Um, I would definitely encourage that for anyone that is in this field who wants to work with people, especially people from hard places, children from hard places. Um, so that's a big thing. Um, and then I would just say, if you're afraid of something, just do it anyway, you know, like like the worst thing that can happen go through it because I am a type A person and I have anxiety. So I have done that, but, but anyway, try it anyway. Um, and then if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out, but prepare yourself, but then try it. Um, so I would just encourage I, that. Yeah. Just jump right on in go for it. Like yeah. you said, the worst that can happen is you decide this is not for me yeah. and then just go find something else. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just make sure that you don't burn bridges either. If you don't like something, you know, like I think that it's important to like, I've, I'm still friends with one of my professors from college today. And like, I've checked in with her and been like, Hey, have a second, like just maintain those connections, like, and try and find connections anywhere you can, because even if that doesn't really like lead somewhere that you might think that it should or could doesn't mean that you're not getting something very valuable from the information. Um, um, you know, very good point. Yeah. Like you, you get a lot of things that you don't realize until later on when you kind of look back and it can be really helpful and useful. Um, and then just like practice takes perfect. Like I think that I was really hard on myself initially when I came into this field and just in general, like as a person. And I thought like, God, I have to do everything a perfect way, a certain way. And just like, mm -hmm. you know, I wasn't good at public speaking, <laughs> I hate it, but I practice it. I tried, I pushed myself, you know, and I had to accept that I wasn't perfect and I'm not perfect at a lot of things and that's okay. Um, and actually it kind of makes it more, more interesting. <laughs> Yeah. Not and like perfect. you said, you keep getting good at it. And I mean, you keep doing it and, and you and, yeah. and you become more comfortable with it. Yes. Yes. I'm definitely more comfortable with public speaking, but it's still not my favorite thing to do. Yeah. So, but yeah, I've, I've definitely gotten to a point where I realize it can be really, really helpful um, if you learn how to reach people. And, and, and that is a big part of what I do as well. Like we, I do help with training, um, all of our, our staff and our team does. And so that is a really wonderful thing to do, to be able to impart that information on to, to new volunteers and to new people going through um, the process to learn and, and, and grow and become, you know, somebody within your agency and, and as, a, as a colleague or a peer. Yeah. I feel like if, I, I definitely can point to a lot of things that, you know, I was not naturally good at, but you know, you work at it and then yeah. Well, yeah, it's still not your favorite thing necessarily. Sometimes it turns into your favorite thing, but usually not, but yeah. it, it's fine because, because you can do it. You're you can to do, do it well you do well at, right? Like you want to do right. things you know you'll do well at, but it's harder to push yourself and make yourself to do things that you're not good at. You're like, Oh gosh, like, Oh, but I'll look silly. Well, it will look silly. It'll be. Yep. <laughs> 
we're all out here looking silly. So yep, <laughs> just go yeah. for it. Um, and then you mentioned becoming trauma informed, like, is there a particular, um, resource or program that you have in mind? Or I know that there are several out there, I believe. Yeah, um, there are a whole, there's a whole sort of like, there's just all sorts of different programs and ways to be um, trauma informed. Um, I'm actually going to go through the process to become um, a TBRI practitioner and um, trust based relational intervention practitioner through um, Texas Christian University. Okay. Yeah. And so Karen Purvis has a wonderful program that um, where they talk about TBRI and working with children from hard places. And so I would definitely um, recommend checking out um, anything by Karen Purvis. Um, and you can go to the TCU website and look up information about that. Um, but it really, if you go online, I, <laughs> I would encourage you just to type in, you know, trauma informed care and, and just search. <laughs> You'll see a ton of it. <laughs> and just obviously do your, um, you know, your own assessment of whether it's a legitimate site or not, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. online and looking up what that means and what that looks like, because it, it's important to be trauma informed, um, no matter what, if you're working with people and kids, in my opinion, uh -huh. as a teacher, as a, a professional, as, um, you know, a psychologist or a doctor, um, cause it really, um, there's, it really can and change the way you view people and their responses and their thoughts like the way that they behave um, and how they're choosing to behave and what that means, you know, like, okay, like there's a need behind that behavior. Like there's a reason this kid is doing that. Um, you know, like there's a reason that they're, they're throwing up their pencil and their paper at you because they're so frustrated at you in the, in the classroom. Like there, there's a reason they're doing that. You know, it's not, yeah. they want to throw that paper at your face. Like they're, um, you have to take the time though, to figure out that and not just label them as a child with like a problem, you know? Yeah, for sure. I, one of my colleagues who was in one of my professional organizations, the national council on family relations, and she, um, was here for a recent conference in Houston, uh, by the Texas council on family relations, but she was our closing speaker, Deborah Berkey. She has been working in her state of Delaware and they actually, I guess, got, like, got the governor's office to coordinate. They've been basically doing trauma-informed care training throughout oh. the entire state. That's so, so awesome. Like they, isn't that cool? Yeah, because like yes. you said, you, I mean, you just brought it up and that made me think about it. The fact that like it's helpful for all of these people, especially who are working with the people, the public, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. especially if you're working with kids, you know, to like have some, some basic training. And so that's what they've been doing. Like, you know, um, basically basic training and trauma informed care. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah I think, all segments. Yeah. I think people don't realize like there, there are so many different ways like that you can connect with someone, but you have to also know who you are and where you come from. And so part of the training, um, it, it's important for you to understand like, cause TBRI is attachment based, you know, it's, um, yeah. And so what's your attachment style with your family, with your, your dynamic and your background, because that is going to affect the way you approach someone and responses mm. to them. And so you have to understand where you're coming from and who you are. And then you also need to take the time to figure out how to help support someone else when they're struggling and disarm their fear and help to connect with them, um, in a way that isn't going to like 
frustrate or hurt them more, you know, like it's, it's very important and it, it can be very challenging. Um, but it, it talks about like how there's physical changes with trauma, physiological, physical changes, um, and just anything can be trauma. It just depends on the situation, but we've all gone through trauma, you know, yeah. we've all gone through hurricanes and we've gone, COVID-19 is a trauma. Oh yeah. So yeah, it's just like, people don't necessarily think of those things as traumas, but they, they are in, for a lot of people. And, in, and so it's just a really good way for you to understand where people are and how to meet them there and just, um, you know, repair and rebuild and, and kind of help them move forward. That's really cool. That's great advice. Yeah. Um, just, um, exploring trauma informed care and also just jumping in, trying things out. I think that that's always good advice to remember. Um, just putting yourself out there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Crystal. I have so enjoyed this talk. Thank you for your time. Yeah. Thank you for having me again. I really appreciate you reaching out to me. I'm like, I'm, I'm like, Oh my gosh, people want to hear about me. I feel silly, but no, no, they do. I'm honored I mean, you think of me. So, <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, I, I, I mean, even just sitting here thinking, I'm like, oh, now I'm actually kind of kicking myself that I didn't ask some of these questions <laughs> before <laughs> because I feel a little badly that some of my former students haven't gotten all the details of your story. But, but yeah, so that's what this podcast is all about is like yeah. just kind of part hearing, two. you know, yeah, <laughs> part two. Part to the extended, the expanded version. Exactly. Like, you know, hearing how people got where they are, because as we can see, I mean, I feel like it's always an interesting path. And so I just appreciate your time so much. Yeah, of and course. No, thank you so much. I, I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dr. Jordan. Thank you. You have a great, they'll call me Erica. <laughs> I feel like we're past the Dr. Jordan, but we're definitely past that. Earned that degree. You worked hard. So also Dr. Jordan. Um, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, you have a great one. And All right. Thank you so much, Erica. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode of the HDFS Careers Podcast. If you have recommendations for HDFS or other family science alumni to interview, please reach out to me at hdfscareers.com. Don't worry if they are not working in a job that would normally be considered in the field of human development and family studies. I'm interested in hearing a variety of stories, especially if they are working outside of academia. If you like this podcast and want other people to be able to find it, please rate and review it in iTunes or share it on social media. Until next time, keep exploring your future possibilities.